This is Cory Doctorow, science fiction writer and activist with the Electronic Frontier Foundation. You're listening to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Kerry Parker, and this is episode 213, March 29th, 2021. And uh, I'm actually kind of bummed. I missed I missed our, uh, our my... The podcast's anniversary, the fourth anniversary of the podcast was March 8th, and I meant to call it out. I think I said it was coming, but I don't think I ever actually like celebrated it when it happened, so I guess I'll have to celebrate today. Yeah, it's hard to believe I've been doing this every week for four years. A couple of quick business notes. I'm working like almost as I speak. I'm working on uh, with a professional artist to come up with a logo for the business. I mean, I've got the, the book artwork which I've sort of used for branding, I guess. I guess I had to. You know, if you look at the the blog and the podcast and um, the book, they all share the same image that uh, was chosen for me by A-Press. Now, I had some input on that choice. But I've only done two books with them, and they've done two different images each time. So my guess is they're going to want to change that dragon image on the book every time. So it doesn't really work terribly well for branding. It means that I have to redo everything. I'll probably stick with the... Probably stick with what I've got for most of the branding so far, but, you know, for potential merch, you know, t-shirts, <laughs> coffee mugs, mouse pads, and other stuff that's not quite so generic, uh, I decided it was time I actually had a real logo. So, anyway, I'm working on that, and if you're one of my patrons on Patreon, you're actually getting to give me some input on that. I'm working on that right now. Uh, now, by the time you hear this, I'm actually hoping to have nailed that down, um, but, you know, just one of the perks of being a patron, you can get to, you know weigh in on some of these things and, you know, have some influence. Speaking of which, I'm also moving forward on the secret project, the manufactured one-of-a-kind item that, uh, well, maybe not one-of-a-kind, hundred-of-a-kind, at least in this first run, uh, that will only be available to patrons. Or, I guess, people who know me personally, I'll probably hand some of them out. But uh, uh, anyway, I'm really looking forward to that. I've got a whole website set up for it, a brand new website set up for this very particular thing. And I'm hoping to have an announcement about that in two to three weeks. So stay tuned for that. Okay, but today we've got a big news show. So let me stop yapping and we'll get to that. We're going to, lots of topics to cover today. I'm definitely going to start by talking about the Microsoft Exchange hack. It's a huge, huge deal. We're still trying to get a handle on it, but there has been some positive developments. Uh, I'll catch you up on that. Also going to talk about some Apple news and some... You know, maybe not favorable news, at least some awkward news. And, you know, I'm a fanboy, but I got to call it like I see it sometimes. And there's some couple interesting stories, actually, that we're going to talk about with... Uh, it's nuanced, but, it, you know, I wish Apple maybe acted differently. So we'll talk about that. We're going to talk about a massive breach of a bunch of uh, enterprise security cameras, uh, all run by one particular company, and which led to them all being hacked, including inside several big-name companies and, and jails and hospitals and other places. We've talked about deep fakes on the show before, and some scientists have come up with an interesting way to help us, well, not us maybe as humans, but as, with the using computers as tools to determine what things are deep fakes and which things are real. Firefox has a couple of really cool new privacy features that have just came out that I want to talk about. Amazon has decided to add really invasive surveillance cameras to all of its delivery trucks. Um, and there's one particular aspect of that in the news recently that's getting a lot of play. And there was a pretty startling article in one of the Dallas, uh, the Dallas Morning News, which was for Texas, but honestly, it applies to just about every state in the United States. 
and probably also true around the world. Uh, so it calls out a, uh, an issue that I've talked about before, but um, I wanted to bring up again because it's really just horrible. If you are a T-Mobile subscriber, and that would include people that were brought in because they used to be Sprint subscribers, or if you're an MVNO subscriber, which is Mobile Virtual Network Operator, a fancy name for kind of like an offshoot of, of, of T-Mobile, one of the cheaper brands that they reuse the T-Mobile network. Anyway, if you're in any way, any way related to T-Mobile, you're going to want to uh, change some privacy settings because of uh, some new opt-out tracking that they are starting this month. And finally, uh, we're going to talk about a recent hack. Well, not really a hack in the sense of computer hacking, but more of a life hack kind of, or a process hack used by some nefarious people to intercept SMS messages, uh, which is should be the final nail in the coffin for anybody who thinks that SMS is the way to go for two-factor authentication. And so that will lead to our tip of the week. So lots of news to get to. Let's get to it. All right, first up, let's catch you up on what's going on with the Microsoft Exchange hack. And again, just to put this in perspective, I, I personally think this is probably going to be more consequential, perhaps, than the SolarWinds hack. Not only because I think it will end up, you know, infecting more people around the planet, more companies mostly, because Microsoft Exchange is an email server that's usually run by a business. Um, but it could be a small business, doesn't have to be a big business. Um, there are just so many of these all around the world, and they were all vulnerable for uh, a long period of time in internet hacking time. And I think we're going to be dealing with this for a while, because even if the patch gets out there, a lot of these systems have been compromised, and we're going to have to figure out which ones have been compromised and fix that, um, and that's no easy task. So uh, there was actually several articles about this this week, and the one I'm about to read now kind of sums them up and covers the main points. Uh, I did kind of reorder the wording of this because they did the history part last and the most recent stuff first. So I kind of changed the ordering around a little bit. So this kind of goes more in chronological order to catch you up on what's been going on. So this is from Bleeping Computer. This month, Microsoft disclosed that four zero days, and zero days are, are fresh uh, vulnerabilities found in software, four zero days were actively being exploited in attacks against on-premises Microsoft Exchange servers. These vulnerabilities are collectively known as proxy logon and are being exploited in indiscriminate attacks targeting organizations from multiple industry sectors worldwide, attempting to steal sensitive information. Threat actors behind proxy logon attacker have been observed deploying web shells, crypto mining software, and more recently, DeerCry and Black Kingdom ransomware payloads on compromised on-premises exchange servers. Now, they said that twice. On-premises, I think here is as opposed to in the cloud, like something that Microsoft would manage for you as a company. Uh, this is for one where you actually, as a company, own the computing box that is running Microsoft Exchange. And it's somewhere on-premises, you know, on, on somewhere in a building that you own. Back to the article. Since Microsoft disclosed the ongoing attacks, Slovak internet security firm ESET has also discovered at least 10 APT groups targeting unpatched exchange servers. Now, let's stop again. APT is for Advanced Persistent Threat. That's a cybersecurity term for basically a known group of hackers. It's often nation-state hackers, uh, so they're advanced in that they're probably well-funded or at least highly capable. They're persistent. They are it's not just a one-off. They've been attacking multiple things and threat, which is self-explanatory. So APT. 
So again, now not to bury that in lingo, but what they're saying is they found at least 10 different APTs, hacking groups out there actively trying to exploit these bugs. CISA officials, that's C-I-S-A, man, this, this thing is loaded with terms. CISA is the United States Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. All right, so let's go back to it. CISA officials said two weeks ago that so far there was no evidence of U.S. federal civilian agencies compromised during these ongoing exchange attacks. The conclusion is based on data collected by federal agencies following an emergency directive issued by CISA days after the proxy logon security updates were released one week ago. CISA's emergency directive ordered the agencies to urgently update or disconnect their on-premises exchange servers and check their networks for indicators of compromise. Okay, now here's the more recent part of the article. Roughly 92% of all internet-connected on-premises Microsoft Exchange services, servers affected by the proxy logon vulnerabilities are now patched and safe from attacks Microsoft said on Monday. And this was probably a week or two ago to, for you guys. A total of 400,000 internet-connected exchange servers were impacted by the proxy logon vulnerabilities when Microsoft issued the initial security patches on March 2nd, with over 100,000 of them still unpatched one week later on March 9th. And in internet hacking time, that is forever. Microsoft now says that there are now 43% fewer vulnerable on-premises Microsoft Exchange servers that are reachable over the internet within a single week of concerted patching efforts worldwide. From around 82,000 unpatched servers on March 14th, there are now roughly 30,000 still exposed to attacks around the world, according to Risk IQ data. 30,000, that's still a lot. And those are 30,000 companies, basically, not people. Uh, Microsoft published additional sets of security updates after March 11th, covering over 95% of all vulnerable versions exposed on the internet and step-by-step -step guidance to help address those ongoing attacks. The company also released a one-click exchange on-premises mitigation tool to enable small business owners to quickly mitigate the recently disclosed proxy logon vulnerabilities, even without the help of a dedicated security team. That was crucial. They should have done that much earlier. Additionally, Microsoft Defender Antivirus has been updated to automatically protect unpatched exchange servers from ongoing attacks by automatically mitigating the actively exploited proxy logon bugs. Okay, so there's more to that article, but that I think that covers the key points. So in summary, this was really bad. Uh, this affected a lot. Like, I mean, Microsoft Exchange is used everywhere. Uh, it is the email server of choice for most businesses. And because of that, the bad guys know that, and they targeted it, and they found some bugs that have been there for years. And first of all, they use those to, they use those to get into the network. Once they were in the network, they were then able to put all sorts of other malware in the network. So basically, even if you go back and fix the vulnerabilities, you may have been, you probably have been already compromised if you didn't do it quick enough. And again, this has all become automated, especially when you're talking about APTs. These groups look for patches to come out from Microsoft or known vulnerabilities. And if they're bad enough and widespread enough, they just automate it. They just attack everything indiscriminately because who knows, right? I mean, they may, even if they don't even know who this company is, you know, maybe someday in the future, if they could plant a back door in their systems, they might want to take advantage of that someday. So this is really bad. Microsoft 
seem to have really dropped the ball on this. I can't imagine they're not going to be open to some sort of congressional scrutiny or perhaps even clash accident lawsuits, you know, once damage actually starts being done as a result of this problem. From everything I know, they were warned about this and had at least a full month, if not two, to issue a patch. And it sounds like what they did is they waited for their regular patch Tuesday and they missed one patch Tuesday. So they waited for next month's to release the patches and did, but that's just too long. And and then it seems like perhaps, and I think this is being investigated, that somebody leaked the fact that this bug was out there. I mean, there's was, there was obviously the security researchers who found it and notified Microsoft. And then after that, there's a certain small group of people within Microsoft and uh, the security researchers and perhaps... I don't know who else might have had access to the information, but it it looks like that information may have gotten out because before the patch was released, uh, there was a flurry of hacking activity using this exploit. We're going to be picking this one apart for a long time to come, but it's really ugly. And uh, (laughs) Microsoft finally got on the ball and made made it easier and uh, basically almost impossible not to get these fixes put out. Uh, I would submit they should have done that to begin with. Um, I would also say they shouldn't have waited for Patch Tuesday to, to fix this. This should have been an out-of-cycle bug fix. But anyway, it is what it is now, and we're just going to have to keep dealing with it. it. sounds like they're closing up a lot of the holes, but there's still some out there. And again, even if these systems do get patches to fix the security bug, more than likely because their systems have been open and vulnerable to the public internet for weeks, these 10 APTs, among others, have almost surely installed backdoors. It, it would not surprise me if these systems are multiply hacked, like there are probably at least 10 backdoors installed on many of these systems from those 10 APTs. So it's going to be ugly. But anyway, I'll keep you posted. Let's go on to the next uh, news article. Actually, a couple of them here. Um, so there's been a couple of cases in the, in, in the news recently about Apple and things they have done, one with a VPN app, and one with regard to demands from Russia about apps that must be installed on all devices. They're, all, they're each a little different, but they're related. Let me read, read them separately and talk about them separately. Let's start with the, the, the VPN one. Uh, and this has to do with Myanmar, which is in the middle of a coup, honestly. Uh, and the citizens there are having trouble uh, communicating with the outside world because the, the people in charge have been trying to block access. And of course, a VPN is something you might want to have handy in situations like that. So um, Proton VPN from the makers of Proton Mail ran into a situation where their app was threatened to be removed. I don't think it was actually removed from the Apple Store because of some language they had in their app description. The CEO of Proton Mail, Andy Yen, who I've had on the show before as an interview guest, uh, and actually, I'm hoping to get back soon because it's been a while. Posted a really nasty letter about this, but it turns out that maybe it was a little overblown. I, I don't know. But anyway, that's kind of the setup. Let me read this article. And this is from, it was on multiple sites, but this is Mac Rumors coverage of this story. Earlier this week, popular VPN provider Proton made headlines by linking Apple's rejection of a security update to its Proton VPN mobile app with the ongoing political upheaval in Myanmar. In response, Apple Today provided Mac Rumors with a timeline of events regarding the app update. 
In a blog post dated March 23rd, Proton founder Andy Yen wrote that Apple rejected, quote, important updates, unquote, for its VPN app related to security on the same day that the UN recommended people in Myanmar use ProtonMail, an encrypted email app also developed by Proton. Yen claimed that signups for Proton VPN, quote, spiked to 250 times the previous average daily rate, unquote, in the days following the military coup, making Proton VPN an essential tool for people on the ground and accused Apple of putting profits ahead of human rights by blocking the update. Specifically, Apple rejected the update due to an excerpt from the app's description which encouraged users to, quote, bypass geo-restrictions or content limitations, unquote. ProtonVPN's App Store description previously read, quote, whether it is challenging governments, educating the public, or training journalists, we have a long history of helping bring online freedom to more people around the world, unquote. Proton told MacRumors earlier this week that the rejection came completely out of the blue on March 17th, given that the app had always had the same description without any issue or rejection from Apple. Now, Apple has provided MacRumors with a more concise and specific timeline of events. In a statement, Apple says that all apps made by Proton are available and have remained available for download in Myanmar, seemingly rejecting the narrative put forth by Proton that it had deliberately withheld the update due to the situation on the ground. Apple says it approved Proton VPN's latest App Store update on March 19th and says correctly that Proton published the update to users two days later on March 21st. Proton VPN, another two days later, published a blog post correlating the rejection to Apple limiting free speech and human rights in Myanmar. And then it gives a blow-by-blow of these dates, but I think we basically just covered it. So let me just read Apple's statement to Mac Rumors. Apple told them, quote, All apps made by Proton, including Proton VPN, have remained available for download in Myanmar. We approved the most recent version of Proton VPN on March 19th. Following this approval, Proton chose to time the release of their update, making it available on March 21st, while subsequently publishing their blog post on March 23rd, unquote. Apple founder Andy Yen told The Verge that due to the emergency in Myanmar, Proton decided to remove the excerpt from the app's description that Apple had objective to, which, quote-unquote, finally allowed the update to be released to users. Despite the clarification from Apple, what remains Proton's point of contention is the sudden strict enforcement of App Store guidelines. App Store Rule 5.4 states that VPN apps must, quote, not violate local laws, unquote. And Apple viewed Proton's description as a violation of the rule, despite Proton's claim that Apple had no issues with it in the past. It's still unclear what motivated Apple to enforce this particular legal rule more strictly on this occasion, but the timing is certainly unfortunate for the company from a PR perspective given Myanmar's current political situation. Meanwhile, Apple continues to push back against the perception that it is abusing its position as a platform arbiter as it faces multiple watchdog investigations and antitrust legal cases brought against it by developers unhappy with its App Store policies. Okay, so I'm not really sure what else to say about this. This is a thorny situation. You know, Apple has an ecosystem that is closed. It's a walled garden. And if you want to play on the Apple products in the Apple store, you've got to go through Apple and Apple has rules. Apple being a global service provider, as well as a product manufacturer has taken the stance that it tries whenever possible to obey local laws and restrictions for its products. Um, Unfortunately, what that means is that in some areas like China, Russia, North Korea, Myanmar, I guess, uh, Turkey, Uh, Other countries with more authoritarian 
governments or something else going on, in this case, Myanmar having a coup, you know, these countries often put undue or maybe undemocratic type restrictions on these products. And Apple has to basically decide, you know, am I going to stop selling products in these countries? Uh, is that the right answer? Or should I comply with their local laws and regulations, even if we don't agree with them, you know, perhaps for a greater good, you know, would it, is it better that the people in that country have zero access to Apple products and all the apps that run on Apple products? You know, I, I, I don't know. That's, that's a tough one, you know, especially the way capitalism runs currently in the United States. Uh, and that is when we're, you know, when these companies incorporate, they're literally responsible to their shareholders almost at the expense of all else. And were Apple to pull out of one of these markets, particularly a big one like China, for example, you know, I would think the shareholders under that clause of incorporation might have means and, uh, you know, to sue Apple. I, I don't know. It's tricky. There's what's right and wrong and there's what's legal. And those don't always line up. So anyway, there's another one here, uh, uh, another article about Russia. So let me read that and then maybe I'll... <laughs> Philosophize some more. Okay, uh, this one's from Wired. Beginning in April, new iPhones and other iOS devices sold in Russia will include an extra setup step. Alongside questions about language preference and whether to enable Siri, users will see a screen that prompts them to install a list of apps from Russian developers. It's not just a regional peculiarity. It's a concession Apple has made to legal pressure from Moscow, one that could have implications far beyond Russia's borders. The law in question dates back to 2019 when Russia dictated that all computers, smartphones, smart TVs, and so on sold there must come preloaded with a selection of state-approved apps that includes browsers, messenger platforms, and even antivirus services. Apple has stopped short of that. The suggested apps aren't pre-installed and users can opt not to download them, but the company's decision to bend its rules on pre-installs could inspire other repressive regimes to make similar demands, or even more invasive ones. And this next quote is from Adrian Shabazz. He's the director of democracy and technology at the human rights nonprofit Freedom House. And he says, quote, this comes within the context of years and years of mounting regulatory pressure on tech companies in Russia, unquote. The country has undertaken a massive effort to reshape its Internet towards mechanisms for control, censorship and mass surveillance. And the government has imposed increasingly strict regulations on domestic tech companies. And quoting him again, he says, quote, they must store data on local servers provide security agencies with, decrypt, with decryption keys, and remove content that violates Russian law. And now they're being forced to promote government-approved apps on their platforms, unquote. The pre-installed apps law came to be known as the law against Apple because it essentially dared Apple to pull out of the Russian market entirely rather than change the rules in its company's controlled iPhone ecosystem. Instead, Apple has carved out an exception that others, including Android manufacturers, have not. Google, which develops the open-source Android mobile operating system, doesn't manufacture most of, its most of that platform's hardware directly, and it doesn't control which apps come pre-installed on third-party devices. And it notes that Google does make the Pixel phone, but it doesn't sell it in Russia. Mikhail Klimarev, executive director of the Internet Protection Society, a Russian non-governmental organization, NGO, says he believes the pre-installed apps law has a dual function for the Kremlin. It creates an opportunity to promote apps that the country can surveil and control, while also allowing the government to manipulate the tech market. 
the law will penalize and fine any vendor who sells non-compliant computers and smartphones rather than the manufacturers who made them, unless, of course, the company also sells their products directly in Russia, as Apple does. And quoting Klamerov again, he says, quote, The fact is that the responsibility for the violation is imposed not on the vendor, but on the retailer. In this case, the law will be used to destroy small sellers, and then the big distributors will raise their prices. In Russia, a lot of absurd laws have been adopted lately, which are technically impractical, unquote. The situation with Russia's mandatory apps is not the first time Apple has faced invasive legal requirements from an authoritarian government, nor the first time the company has conceded to those demands. Notably, to continue operating in China, Apple agreed to use a domestic cloud provider to store its Chinese customers' iCloud data and encryption keys. And Apple removes apps from its Chinese iOS app store when the government demands. The accommodation for Russian apps during setup, though, is a new frontier in Apple's interaction with re repressive governments. And quoting Shabazz again, he says, quote, This is part of a broader trend we've seen in countries like Iran, Turkey, and India. Authorities are channeling frustration with popular foreign apps while promoting domestic equivalents where data and speech are more tightly controlled by the government. It's a bait and switch, unquote. From both an economic and national security standpoint, it's understandable to a degree that governments would want to promote domestic software to their own citizens. But in practice, the Internet's growing balkanization is eroding Internet freedom worldwide and undermining the entire concept of a decentralized global web. Apple's plan still leaves multiple opportunities for users to remove government-imposed apps, but promoting them during setup will inevitably result in broader distribution of Russia's chosen software. The apps aren't specifically developed by the government, but the Kremlin, like many authoritarian governments, has extensive reach within its internet ecosystem. Broader distribution of its favored apps could result in expanded government access to Russian user data and personal information, or even situations where the government tracks which devices are using certain apps and which ones have removed them. Questions remain about whether Russia's end goal is to completely isolate and disconnect its internet from the wider world, or whether the government prefers a hybrid network. But from the Kremlin's perspective, an opportunity to promote certain apps on iOS is a boon either way. Apple could have simply allowed Russia to pre-install whatever apps it wanted on iOS devices, but the company also could have taken a radical stand against such interference. Instead, it found a middle ground, one that other countries may well seize on, to suit their own autocratic interests. Okay. So this is this is tricky. This is not a simple subject. I don't claim to have all the answers here. Again, I think it's this really, you know, fine line that Apple needs to walk between maximizing shareholder value, which they are they have a fiduciary responsibility to do, and doing what's right. Tim Cook has often come out strongly on things like privacy and other LGBTQ rights and so on. And yet, you know, there are governments where they operate that have local laws and regulations that, you know, we in the broader democratic liberal world don't agree with. You know, I don't know what you do. Uh, I guess, you know, from an ivory tower perspective, I'd like to say that Apple should just pull out of those markets and not bow to that. But, you know, there's something to be said about if you do have your iPhones in that area, sometimes when people try hard enough, they can still figure out ways to install the apps they want uninstall the apps they don't want. So boy, yeah, I don't know. It, that that's that's a tough one. But, you know, in all fairness, I wanted to bring it up because it's uh, an important issue and it's, you know, I'm not sure Apple did the right thing, but I'm not sure what the right answer was either. All right, back to some security news. You probably saw this in the news. Some hackers breached thousands of security cameras including companies like Tesla, Cloudflare, um and so this is an article from Bloomberg that uh, describes what happened there. 
A group of hackers say they breached a massive trove of security camera data collected by Silicon Valley startup Verkata Incorporated, gaining access to live feeds of 150,000 surveillance cameras inside hospitals, companies, police departments, prisons, and schools. Companies whose footage was exposed include carmaker Tesla Incorporated and software provider Cloudflare Incorporated. In addition, hackers were able to view video from inside women's health clinics, psychiatric hospitals, and the offices of Verkata itself. Some of the cameras, including in hospitals, use facial recognition technology to identify and categorize people captured on footage. Hackers say they also have full access to the full video archive of all Verkata customers. The data breach was carried out by an international hacker collective that intended to show the pervasiveness of video surveillance and the ease with which systems could be broken into, said Tilly Cotman, one of the hackers who claimed credit for breaching San Mateo, California-based Verkata. Cotman, who previously claimed credit for hacking chipmaker Intel and carmaker Nissan, said the reasons for hacking are, quote, lots of curiosity, fighting for freedom of information and against intellectual property, a huge dose of anti-capitalism, and a hint of anarchism. And it's all just too much fun not to do it, unquote. The hackers said they also gained access to the security cameras of Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, Connecticut, where a gunman killed more than 20 people in 2012. Also available to the hackers were 330 security cameras inside the Madison County Jail in Huntsville, Alabama. Verkata offers a feature called People Analytics, which lets a customer, quote, search and filter based on many different attributes, including gender traits, clothing color, and even a person's face, unquote, according to a Verkata blog post. Images seen by Bloomberg show that the cameras inside the jail, some of which were hidden inside vents, thermostats, and defibrillators, track inmates and correctional staff using the facial recognition technology. The hackers say they were able to access live feeds and archive videos, in some cases including audio, of interviews between police officers and criminal suspects, all in the high-definition resolution known as 4K. And this is a quote from a Verkata spokesperson. Quote, We have disabled all internal administrator accounts to prevent any unauthorized access. Our internal security team and external security firm are investigating the scale and scope of this issue, and we have notified law enforcement. And there's a couple quotes here, one from Cloudflare and one from Tesla. Um, it's just details, basically them saying, yeah, it wasn't that big of a deal. What they looked at wasn't that big, it wasn't that big of a deal. But to me, the bigger deal was the hack. Uh, and they did uh, follow up with one more thing, saying other companies identified in the story didn't immediately respond to requests for comment. Representatives of the jails, hospitals, and schools named in this article either declined to comment or didn't immediately respond to request. Okay, so there's some company that sells a apparently cloud-based surveillance, a camera-based surveillance system that includes audio in some cases with super high resolution to many companies jails, hospitals, schools, and so on. Uh, and it was hacked. And because all of this video was stored centrally and was not properly secured, these hackers had access to every one of those cameras and apparently a large backlog of recorded video. So uh, there's lots of probably morals to the story, but the one I want to call particular attention to is this. The only data you can't hack or steal is data that you don't collect. Uh, if you collect it, if you store it, it's going to get loose. Data should be seen as a highly toxic asset to try to contain, collect, and hold. You should collect the absolute bare minimum. You should get rid of it as soon as you no longer need it. And it must be securely contained. My guess is that uh, this company failed on most of those fronts. 
certainly the latter one. Okay, a little more positive news, maybe. Um, we've talked about deepfakes on, on, on the show before. These are computer AI-driven, used to be pictures, now it's actually full video, that typically allows you to take a person, preferably somebody who's already gotten a lot of pictures and video taken, you know, celebrities, politicians, famous people, uh, and get them to say and do things that they didn't actually do, but makes it look like it was them doing it. So let me read this article from the next web about a technique scientists have come up with to try to discern uh, in an automated fashion when a deep fake has been created versus a real video. Deep fakes are being used for a range of nefarious purposes, from disinformation campaigns to inserting people into porn, and the doctored images are getting harder to detect. A new AI tool provides a surprisingly simple way of spotting them. Look at the light reflected in the eyes. The system was created by computer scientists from the University of Buffalo. In tests on portrait-style photos, the tool was 94% effective at detecting deepfake images. The system exposes the fakes by analyzing the corneas, which have a mirror-like surface that generates reflective patterns when illuminated by light. In a photo of a real face taken by a camera, the reflection on the two eyes will be similar because they're seeing the same thing. But deep fake images synthesized by GANs, G-A-N, I'll explain that in a second, typically fail to accurately capture this resemblance. Instead, they often exhibit inconsistencies, such as different geometric shapes or mismatched locations of the reflections. The AI system searches for these discrepancies by mapping out a face and analyzing the light reflected in each eyeball. It generates a score that serves as a similarity metric. The smaller the score, the more likely the face is a deep fake. In other words, the less similar the reflections are in the right and the left eye, the more likely that that image was uh, generated by a computer and is not real. The system proved highly effective at detecting deep fakes taken from This Person Does Not Exist, a repository of images created with the style GAN2 architecture. However, the study authors acknowledge that it has several limitations. The tool's most obvious shortcoming is that it relies on a reflected source of light in both eyes. The inconsistencies in these patterns can be fixed with manual post-processing, and if one eye isn't visible in the image, the method doesn't work. It's also only proven effective on portrait images. If the face in the picture isn't looking at the camera, the system would likely produce false positives. The researchers plan to investigate these issues to improve the effectiveness of their method. In its current form, it's not going to detect the most sophisticated deepfakes, but it still could spot many of the cruder ones. Okay, so I said I would explain what a GAN was. That's an acronym, G-A-N, for Generative Adversarial Network, which perfectly explains it, right? Now you know exactly what I mean. <laughs> no. It's really actually quite clever. So what some of the AI and machine learning uh, researchers have figured out is it's, you know, it's kind of not enough to take uh, something you want to try to generate a fake of uh, and just let a computer algorithm look at a whole bunch of faces and then try to generate a new face that doesn't, that's not of a real person. Um, and that's happened, by the way. And if, if you look at those, they're quite astounding. Um, they basically take several pictures, let's say a thousand pictures of middle-aged white men and then takes lots of those characteristics and kind of randomizes them, hair color, eye color, nose shape, face shape, whatever, and then generates a brand new face to a person who doesn't exist. But if you look at it carefully, you cannot tell that it's not a picture of a real human. And so what they figured out, which was kind of cool from a purely technical standpoint, is they've actually taken two separate you know, artificial intelligence networks and pitted them against each other. 
basically they have one part of it that it's trying to generate the, you know, the fake image. And then another part of it that's trying to figure out that it's not real or that it looks funny or looks wrong. And you pit them against each other and it's basically two computers fighting against each other. And the results end up being a lot better. You know, obviously you need to tune both sides of that as, you know, to a certain degree, but the results have been quite astounding. And that's where a lot of these deep fakes have come from. So again, I, I think this is interesting. I, you know, I think it's important that we're actually looking uh, for ways to discover deep fakes because they're so, so good now. Uh, I'm going to put a link in the notes. If I haven't talked about this already, there's a, there's a TikToker who generates these Tom Cruise deep fake videos that are just amazing. Now they're what they, what, what they did is they took somebody who's actually, I think it's a Tom Cruise impersonator. So he already kind of looks and like Tom Cruise, he knows how to act and move and has the Tom Cruise facial expressions and vocal, you know, styling. And then they mapped Tom Cruise face on top of it. So, uh, you know, it's not something you're just going to take your grandmother and make her look like Tom Cruise, but I cannot tell the difference. I do not see anything amiss. When I look at these videos, I cannot tell that that is not actually Tom Cruise. You know, so you got to figure that, you know, politicians like presidents, congressmen, MPs uh, around the world, famous people in general uh, are going to be subject to this. And it's going to be really hard to tell the fake from the real. And to paraphrase somebody, the, the lies spread a thousand times faster on the Internet than the truth. And so you get one convincing deep fake video of a famous person, perhaps a politician, saying something really bad uh, or really consequential and spread that through social media before someone has a chance to say, no, that's not real. And there could be a lot of damage done. So it is important that we are working on tools like this to help find and spot these fakes. But uh, this was a very simplistic way of doing it. It was interesting. But obviously the first thing I'm going to do, if I'm somebody who's putting together these GANs is I'm going to set up my GANs to make sure that the reflection in both eyes are the same. All right, moving on. So a couple great new features uh, in Firefox and man, they just guys keep cranking out these great privacy features. I can't believe the rate at which these are coming out and they're all good. And again, I, I, Firefox is the browser. I like Chrome, Safari, uh, Brave and others uh, are already implementing some of these things, have implemented some of these things uh, that's, you know, it's kind of an arms race, but the thing is Firefox in particular and I, and Safari don't have built-in conflicts of interest that Chrome does. And uh, we're actually going to be Chrome's come out with some, you know, they're talking about quote unquote, killing third party cookies uh, with this new technology that they're calling flock. And uh, I'm going to have a whole show devoted to that. We're going to bring on somebody from EFF, I hope uh, to talk about that. So anyway, I'm going to save that one for then, but for now, let's talk about these cool new features in Firefox. Uh, a couple of really short articles here. First one from Apple Insider. Firefox 87, which is available right now, brought with it a new feature that Mozilla is calling Smart Block, which will activate when operating in private browsing and strict tracking protection modes. For many websites, when third-party trackers are disabled, crucial parts of the page break. This includes everything from images not appearing, features not working, forms not submitting, or entire pages failing to load. Smart Block was designed to answer this problem. The company states that it, quote, fixes up web pages that are broken by our tracking protections without compromising user privacy, unquote. Firefox accomplishes this by providing local stand-ins for the blocked content, which behave similarly to the blocked content. The stand-ins are bundled with Firefox and not loaded from third-party sites, so user privacy remains uncompromised. 
Mozilla states that SmartBlock will replace common scripts classified as trackers on the disconnect tracking protection list and that users should see improvement in website functionality and reduced loading times. So again, as I think I discussed recently on the show, third-party trackers almost never benefit you, uh, but sometimes poorly designed websites make use of them such that if you block them, some key parts of the website break, and that should honestly never happen. But this uh, new feature from Firefox is there to address those sites, which is great. And here's another article from ZDNet about another feature. Mozilla Firefox will soon include a revised referrer policy to tighten up queries and better protect user information. Firefox 87, which we just mentioned, that's already out, just came out last week, will cut back on path and query string information from referrer headers, quote, to prevent sites from accidentally leaking sensitive user data, unquote. In a blog post on Monday, developer Demi Lee and security infrastructure engineer manager Christopher Kirschbaumer said the latest browser version will include a, quote, stricter, more privacy-preserving default referrer policy, unquote. And they're going to throw around some kind of funky terms here, but don't worry about it. I'll kind of summarize it when we're done, as, as usual. Browsers send HTTP referrer headers to websites to indicate which location has referred a user to a website server. Full URLs of referring documents are often sent in the HTTP referrer header with other sub-resource requests. And while this may contain innocent information used for purposes including analytics, private user data also may be included. Referrer policies aim to protect this data, but if no policy is set by default, this often defaults to, quote, no referrer when downgrade, unquote, an element that Firefox says does trim down the referrer when navigating to a less secure resource, but still, quote, sends the full URL, including path and query information of the originating document as the referrer, unquote. And again, I'll explain this in a minute. Just let me get through the article. The no referrer when downgrade policy is a relic of the past web when sensitive web browsing was thought to occur over HTTPS connections and as such should not leak information to HTTP requests. Today's web looks much different. The web is on a path to becoming HTTPS only, and browsers are taking steps to curtail information leakage across websites. It is time we change our default referrer policy in line with those new goals. And sorry, that was a quote from Mozilla. As such, Firefox will introduce strict origin when cross-origin as default in the web browser's referrer policy, which will cut away sensitive user information, including path and query string, accessible in URLs and in requests going from HTTPS to HTTP, as well as cross-origin requests. And this is a quote from Mozilla again. It says, Firefox will apply the new root default referrer policy to all navigation requests, redirected requests, and sub-resource requests, thereby providing a significantly more private browsing experiences, unquote. And it does note here that Google Chrome introduced an, also a stricter default referrer policy in version 85, which I think was last uh, last summer, uh, alongside speed improvements. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so a lot of jargon there. Um, when you click on a link, your web browser sends a request to the server. So let's say you search on tennis shoes and you get a bunch of links and one of them goes to Amazon and you click on the link that goes to Amazon looking for tennis shoes. Included in the request that goes from your web browser to Amazon is a whole bunch of information. It's not just the link that you clicked on. It's lots of things, including things about your computer, like your screen size, what version of the OS, what OS and what version you're running, what version of the, of, uh, uh, of the browser you're running, and all sorts of other stuff. But including there is also, uh, and these are all under what we call headers. These are all just... A header is a title for a type or category of information that is sent as part of this request. One of the headers is the referrer header, and that's been there since day one uh, back in the World Wide Web. And 
basically back in the day, what they thought was, hey, wouldn't it be cool if the site you're going to knew where you're coming from? You know, maybe that would inform them as to how best to serve you. Okay. But unfortunately, if you have ever looked closely at the links that you click on, particularly after maybe you've submitted a form or you've kind of drilled down into a website to look at more and more things, you know, your address bar, the, you know, your current location on the web keeps changing. And if you kind of look at that closely, there's lots of stuff in there. There's a path. So it might be amazon.com slash shoes slash men slash tennis or whatever, because you drilled down and now you're looking not just at general Amazon, you're looking at men's tennis shoes on Amazon. Also in there, maybe things like search parameters, like size 12 or blue or Nike or something like that. And oftentimes that information is all appended to your web link such that if you copied that link and sent it to a friend, Hey, here's, here's some cool shoes I'm looking at. What do you think? If they click that link, they would be taken to the exact same thing that you're looking at because buried in that web link is all the information they need to get to the precise view you have of that page on that website. Now, let's say you're done looking at shoes or better yet, if we're thinking in terms of privacy, let's say you are on healthcare.gov or you are on your doctor's website or WebMD or maybe some substance abuse site or Planned Parenthood or, and you have just submitted a request for information form. Yes, I'm pregnant. I'm 18 years old. I'm not married. I'm considering an abortion. Let's, let's say that website was dumb enough to include all that information as query parameters in the URL. And now you say, okay, now I'm going to go to amazon.com or now I'm going to go to google.com in the request that for whatever link you click on next, that takes you away from the privacy compromising site you're on now to some other site that has, should have no, no information whatsoever about what you're doing in the refer header for the request you make to the next website is the link that you just came from potentially including all of that really private information I just talked about. So what Firefox is doing now is basically if you're in strict mode, which I think you should all be in uh, on Firefox, if you go into the preferences and look at security and privacy, set your mode to strict or custom, if you want to make it even more strict than that. Now, Firefox 87 and beyond will trim out all that extra crap. So that at least now, if you were at WebMD searching on, uh, you know, sexually trans, a specific sexually transmitted disease, and some of that information is buried in the link for the page you're on, and you now go to google.com, the only thing that Google will get is WebMD, webmd.com. They won't get slash STD slash syphilis, you know, question mark, age equals 18, question mark, pregnant equals true. All that extra stuff gets stripped off in the referrer header so that the site you're going to does know that the last site you were on was WebMD, but they don't know all the juicy details, perhaps, of what you were doing on that website. So... That's a great thing. Honestly, it's a simple thing that I can't believe we didn't do a long time ago, but it's great that it's now finally done. All right, next up, I've been complaining a lot about Amazon's growth into the mass surveillance market. Uh, that includes the Ring video doorbell, for which they have drawn up contracts with apparently thousands of local police departments across the United States, and who knows what they've done around the world, to offer video footage to law enforcement from privately owned video doorbells. Supposedly, 
it has to be approved by the customer, but I'm sure with the warrant, they would just turn it over. Okay. So Amazon not being, uh, not liking to use delivery services other than their own, uh, because they're too slow, cost too much, whatever has come up with their own. And I'm sure you've seen them. If you've gotten an Amazon, well, if anybody in your neighborhood's gotten something from Amazon, there's those kind of bluish gray vans with Amazon on the side, uh, because Amazon has its own delivery services now. So they are going to put on all of their delivery trucks, multiple video cameras. Uh, this article talks about the one that faces into the truck to watch the driver. Uh, but they're also talking about putting them in facing forward and facing left and facing right. So at least four cameras, let me read this article, uh, from vice about, um, how they're rolling this out and the choice that they're giving their drivers, which is not much. Okay. Amazon delivery drivers nationwide have to sign a biometric consent form this week that grants the tech behemoth permission to use AI powered cameras to access drivers location movement and biometric data. If the company's delivery drivers who number around 75,000 in the United States refuse to sign these forms, they lose their jobs. The form requires drivers to agree to facial recognition and other biometric data collection within the trucks they drive. And here's a quote from the actual form. It says, Amazon may use certain technology that processes biometric information, including onboard safety camera technology, which collects your photograph for the purposes of confirming your identity and connecting you to your driver's account. Using your photograph, this technology may create biometric information and collect, store, and use biometric information from such photographs, unquote. Actually, it goes on. It says, quote, this technology tracks vehicle location and movement, including miles driven, speed, acceleration, braking, turns, and following distance as a condition of delivery packages for Amazon, you consent to use this technology, unquote. In February, Amazon announced plans to install the AI-powered four-lens cameras made by the tech company Netrodyne in all of its Amazon-branded delivery vans. The company says cameras are being used to improve safety and the, quote, quality of the delivery experience, unquote. But as Thomson Reuters reported earlier this month, some drivers are quitting their jobs because of the privacy concerns. The Netrodyne cameras are able to sense when a driver yawns, appears distracted, or isn't wearing a seatbelt, according to a production description, and monitors drivers' body and facial movements. And uh, this is from Deborah Bass, an Amazon spokesperson. She says, quote, Netrodyne cameras are used to help keep drivers and the communities we deliver safe. We piloted the technology from April to October 2020 on over 2 million miles of delivery routes, and the results produced remarkable driver and community safety improvements. Accidents decreased 48%, stop sign violations decreased 20%, driving without a seatbelt decreased 60%, and distracted driving decreased 45%. Don't believe the self-interested critics who claim these cameras are intended for anything other than safety, unquote. Technically, these drivers aren't even employed by Amazon, but by roughly 800 companies known as delivery service partners that operate out of Amazon delivery stations. Still, Amazon controls many aspects of its drivers' working conditions, from their training to their uniforms to their delivery quotas. The policy has already received scrutiny from Congress. Last month, five senators raised concerns about the privacy, about drivers' privacy in a letter to Amazon. Okay, so this is another really thorny issue. By the way, Amazon would not be the first company to do this. A lot of long-haul truckers, uh, companies like that, also have similar technologies built into their systems to monitor their drivers, not just location, um, but I've read that they also, also have internally facing cameras to watch the drivers. Uh, this is not a new thing, uh, but it's getting a lot of press because Amazon is already having some weird 
well, it's having a lot of problems right now with PR around worker conditions and uh, mass surveillance. But that said, we, we are really forging ahead with a lot of new technologies without fully considering the impacts. And while I obviously support things that make drivers be safer, better drivers, you know, avoid accidents, that's all good. But I do also believe that there are ways to do this without violating even a worker's privacy. Uh, you know, once you're an employee, and again, because of because they don't want to be full-time employees, they have to pay health insurance, that kind of stuff. They're all contractors, you know, through third-party companies. So Amazon could avoid giving them health insurance. And, and again, Uber, Lyft, others have done the same thing. It's not just Amazon. This is just kind of a modern way of doing things in the U.S. and probably around the world. But as an employee of some company... Uh, you do end up giving away certain expectations of privacy. For instance, when I worked at as a software engineer at multiple companies, every one of those companies had the right and and some would say the duty to monitor what I do on their premises or using their computing equipment. Even if I'm home, if I'm using a laptop from my employer, that employer has the right to surveil me as I use that device, you know, what, what I've installed, when I use it, what I use it for, what websites I go to. They can even turn on the camera and the microphone that's within their legal right. I'm not saying that any of this is outside of Amazon's legal right currently, but what I am saying is just like employee surveillance and student surveillance, we've got to come up with a better way to do it. And, and students and employees and workers do have some expectation of privacy, even when working for a company, being a student at a school, we still have to draw some lines somewhere. And currently there aren't any. So um, this is a developing area of law uh, company, you know, organizations like the EFF and Epic and others are all over this the ACLU. Um, so expect to see a lot more of this stuff in the news and coming up as lawsuits. And hopefully we'll find some happy medium. But before I go, the other thing to, the other thing here is there's three other cameras we didn't talk about in this article. And those are the ones facing front, left and right. And like ring video doorbells, you can bet that Amazon is snarfing up that video and making it available to law enforcement for a price uh, or the government or pr private investigators or who knows. Um, it's just why not? It's don't leave money on the table. That is the way capitalism currently runs. And so if we're going to you know, have these cameras for safety, why not also use them to collect all sorts of other data? Let's use license plate readers to record every vehicle we see, you know, when and where we see that vehicle, because we've got GPS as well. Let's record faces um, so that maybe if we happen to drive by a burglary in progress or uh, a car accident or uh, something else going on, that we can turn that over to law enforcement. Obviously, there are some good uses to this, but there's also a lot of really horrible uses for this. And we can't judge a technology straight based strictly on the best possible outcome. Okay, man, sorry, I've been, <laughs> I had a lot to get off my chest apparently today. And we still have a few more articles to get through, so, uh, but they're all good. Hang with me here. Uh, this next one is from the Dallas Morning News, uh, and it's another privacy issue. And I would argue it's a security issue. They usually go hand in hand, uh, and they're often couched as privacy when in actuality, they're really security. Or both. Uh, so let me read this article from the Dallas Morning News about how Texas is selling out its citizens' data. Over the past five years, state governments sold your identifying data to hundreds of companies for $450 million. Until now, we never knew the amount. It was a state secret. It's much higher than anyone imagined. But State Senator Jane Nelson, a Republican from Flower Mound, 
used her powerful position as chairperson of the Senate Finance Committee to force out the numbers. Where do phone spammers get information about your car to call and try and sell bogus extended warranties? State government. How did spammers get your name, mailing address, driver's license number, VIN, vehicle identification number, make and model of your car, auto loan information, date of birth, even your photo? State government. Who helps facilitate identity theft? State government. Want to buy 30 million Texas vehicle records, including registration and title? Cost is $5,000 plus 38 cents for each thousand you buy. Want weekly updates? Put $1,755 in an escrow account and pay $135 a week. The Watchdog, which is the name of this column uh, in the Dallas Morning News, the Watchdog first reported the selling of your data in 2015, but until now, we, we never knew how much this data was sold for. Uh, it turns out an average of $90 million a year. Thank you for digging out this outrage, Senator Nelson. The theft of driver's license and vehicle records for 27 million former and current Texans revealed first by the Watchdog in November, and we talked about that on the show here, turned the spotlight on state-sponsored privacy violations. Suddenly, state lawmakers in both parties say they are angry that selling our data has gone on for years. Now they say they wish to curtail it. Driver's license records come from the Texas Department of Public Safety, while vehicle records are maintained by the Department of Motor Vehicles. Other top data sellers are the State Health Services, TXDOT, which is Department of Transportation, I'm sure, Texas Education Agency, and the Workforce Commission. More privacy bills were introduced in this year's Texas legislature than ever before. The Texas driver and vehicle data was lost by Vertifor, a Denver-based insurance software company that didn't secure it properly. Some of the information was found on the so-called dark web, an online marketplace used by criminals to buy information. The watchdog tips his hat to one of America's top privacy lawyers, Joseph H. Malley of Oak Cliff. Malley has filed a class action suit against Vertifor. Two other lawsuits were filed by other lawyers in Houston and Denver, but Malley did something the other lawyers didn't do. The privacy crusader, as he's nicknamed, filed an open records request for government emails related to the Vertifor data loss. What Malley learned is a terrible finding about state government's poor handling of the records. Turns out Vertifor was not authorized to receive state records for the past five years, but the company got them anyway. In 2015, Vertifor merged with another company and should have reapplied formally for the data, but that never happened. Malley told me this means that Vertifor never had a proper contract with the Department of Motor Vehicles to get the data that was breached. TXDMV spokesperson Caroline Love said Friday, quote, the motor vehicle records that Vertifor improperly released in March of 2020 included information on vehicle registrations issued to individuals before February 2019. Contracts for recipients of motor vehicle records with the TXDMV include a requirement to immediately notify the department when significant changes in ownership occurs, unquote. TXDMV's contract was with QQ Solutions, the company Vertifor merged with, when it should have been with Vertifor. After buying the Texas data, Vertifor acted irresponsibly by placing the data on an unsecured server that was freely accessible to anyone on the internet, lawyers in the Houston lawsuit charge. The data was available for five months without password protection or encryption, that suit alleges. The Vertifor executives ignored my phone calls and emails seeking to talk to them for this report, but company lawyers in the Houston case challenged the lawsuit, saying no one can prove that the stolen information led to criminal wrongdoing. Malley explains that it can take years before harm is done. He says thieves can take parts of your data and false components to create new identities. It's called synthetic ID theft, and that's how most ID thefts happen today.
Okay, so this actually talked about a couple different things, right? It talked about, first of all, discovering how much money that the state made off of this data by selling it to other people. And that was quite a lot. And again, this is Texas. But I know for a fact that many other states do similar things. They get all this juicy information from your driver's license um, and other things that you apply for through your state. And they turn around and they sell that data to other people. Why? <laughs> because they can. And obviously, Texas in particular was being very cagey about it. But, uh, you know, as these stories crop up, you can bet that there's going to be a lot of lawyers, you know, and uh, journalists filing Freedom of Information Act uh, requests to get at this data, which should be public. But here's the other thing. And, and this article brings it home toward the end there. And that this was, you know, this is touted sort of as a privacy violation, but it's actually also a security violation. Because if I can get enough information about you, I can generate a fake identity based on your information, either in part or in full, uh, and then ruin your life. And the other thing that it brings home, and I, I want to call attention to this, is that last paragraph there, it says that, you know, it can often take years before harm is done. And a lot of these cases are, seek, are, are trying to get dismissed because, you know, the company is saying, we can't prove that, that anything bad happened as a result of this. That cannot be our standard for judging culpability or responsibility in data theft. But currently, that is kind of where things stand. You, in order to have, you know, a lawsuit or in some cases a class action suit, you have to be able to show harm, financial harm, usually not even just privacy harm, but financial, direct financial harm. And that can be really hard to do. Like, how can you prove that, you know, that someone stole your data from this particular breach when there's so many breaches? I mean, if I was a lawyer trying to defend somebody in this case, I would just say well, they probably got it from Equifax in the Equifax breach. How would you prove otherwise? It would be very, very difficult. So we've got to change the standard here. It's not just enough to say, well, you've got to show that because this data leak, you were actually caused financial harm because that harm may not come later. And it may be very hard to trace back to a particular data breach. Data breaches on their own need to have severe criminal financial penalties. All right, moving on. Um, T-Mobile, if you're a T-Mobile subscriber, uh, and this article is from Android Central, uh, but I'm pretty sure this is probably true for anybody using T-Mobile, whether it's Android or iOS, um, has decided uh, that they are going to sell your data and they're going to do it unless you tell them not to. In other words, it's going to be an opt-out decision, not an opt-in decision. And again, we in the U.S., we have no laws that force them to do otherwise. So this is not unexpected, but we're kind of getting into the tip of the week category here. So you're kind of going to get a two for this week. So if you happen to be on T-Mobile, this will be important for you. So I'll read from the article. And as part of this article, it will tell you what to do to opt out. So here from Android Central, it says, when it comes to wireless carriers in the US, T-Mobile has built a reputation for doing things a little differently than its rivals. Often the plans and promotions pushed by the quote unquote uncarrier have earned praise and admiration from customers and commentators, but a new move by the communications company isn't being seen in such a positive light. According to a recent report, T-Mobile has updated its privacy policy and will now automatically share customer web and app data with third-party advertisers. If this leaves a sour taste in your mouth, you do have options for the time being. Don't think that just because you're a former Sprint customer that you're immune to this new policy, for it affects you too. At the time of this writing, Sprint customers will have to call customer support through the Contact Us form on Sprint's website or send an email to privacy at t-mobile.com. Metro by T-Mobile customers, and Metro is an MVNO, which I talked about earlier. Metro by T-Mobile customers can follow similar steps as listed above. Well, in this case, it's below because I <laughs> changed the order of the article. 
from their account profile. The only folks who are currently exempt are those who access T-Mobile's network through a Google Fi plan. Okay, how do you do it? And this this is going to walk you through how to do it, um, first of all, on your mobile phone uh, from your T-Mobile app on your Android device. Um, I assume it's similar for iOS. Uh, I don't have T-Mobile, so I can't verify this. Um, but you could also do this through your web account as well. Um, so let me walk through the way you do it on your app first, and then uh, it's very similar, but uh, I'll tell you how to do it on the web. So first, you know, you have to open up your T-Mobile app uh, on your Android phone. And again, I assume you can do this on your iOS phone as well. You may have to download the app first. Uh, tap on the More tab in the bottom right corner. Tap on Advertising and Analytics. Then tap on one of the phone numbers in your account. I guess this brings up all the phones associated with your account. You may not have more than one, but if you do, you have to do it for each one. Tap to toggle off the setting for Use My Data for Analytics and Reporting, and then also toggle off the setting for Use My Data to Make Ads More Relevant to Me. Now, if you want to go to the web, it's kind of the same thing. You just log into your web account, click on your name or your profile in the top right corner, uh, then find Privacy and Notifications, and then from there, it sounds like it's almost identical. You have to go for each number and turn off these privacy settings for each phone number on your account. And by the way, uh, there was a law set to take effect uh, under the Obama administration to prevent exactly this sort of tracking by mobile carriers that was struck down by the Trump administration. I don't know why this is a political thing. It shouldn't be. Privacy <laughs> Privacy is not a political subject. I don't get that. But anyway, we got to fix that. Okay, now on to my final story and then we into the real, well, into the main tip of the week. Uh, and this is about SMS being hijacked. And why that is important is because two-factor authentication, which is a fantastic way to secure your accounts, crucial, I'd say at this point for anything important, often uses text messaging or SMS to send your one-time PIN code for your enhanced uh, login. You know, you put in your username and password, and then uh, sometimes in certain situations, you're challenged for this further piece of information. Usually if something is fishy, like you're logging in from a new location, or you haven't logged in for a long time, or something like that, to make absolutely sure that it's really you, meaning that it's not just something you know, your password, it's something you have, your cell phone. Unfortunately, the problem with this is that SMS or text messaging, standard old, you know, text messaging services, while ubiquitous, are not terribly secure. Um, and in this one particular case, it was shown that it's trivially insecure, meaning that all of our two-factor authentication needs to move to what we call TOTP or time-based one-time password mechanisms, which I've talked about on the show before. It's like Google Authenticator or Authy, uh, which I happen to prefer Authy. It's an app you put on your phone that you synchronize once with your account when you set it up using by scanning a little QR code. And then every 30 seconds, it generates a new pin code. Uh, and when asked, you just show it the current pin code which is much, much more secure. Nothing is sent to your phone. It's all based on time of day. So as long as all the clocks are in sync, the pin code you have in your phone is the one that they expect you to send. Okay, so with all that as background, let me read this article from Mac Rumors. Major carriers in the U.S. like Verizon, T-Mobile, and AT&T have made a change to how SMS messages are routed to put a stop to a security vulnerability that allows hackers to reroute texts, according to Motherboard. And originally, I was going to read the article where this was listed as a problem. And in the meantime, in the week or so it took for me to actually bring this to the news segment of the of the podcast, they've they've addressed it. So this this is talking about how they addressed it. But it also talks about what the original problem was, too. So let me get back to the article. It says, 
Carriers introduced the change after a motherboard investigation last week revealed how easy it is for hackers to reroute text messages and use the stolen information to break into social media accounts, or really any account. The site paid a hacker $16 to reroute texts using tools of a company called Sakari, which helps businesses with mass marketing. Sakari offered a text rerouting tool from a company called Bandwidth, which was supplied by another company called NetNumber, resulting in a confusing network of companies contributing to a vulnerability that left SMS texts open to hackers. The hacker hired by Motherboard was able to access Sakari's tools without any authentication or consent from the rerouting target, successfully getting texts from Motherboard's test phone. Sakari is meant to allow businesses to import their own phone number for sending mass texts, which means a business is able to add a phone number to send and receive texts through a Sakari platform. Hackers could abuse this tool by importing a phone number of a victim to get access to the person's text messages. Aerialink, a communications company that helps route text messages, said today that wireless carriers are no longer supporting SMS or MMS text enabling on wireless numbers, something that, quote, affects all SMS providers in the mobile ecosystem, unquote. This will prevent the hack demonstrated by Motherboard last week from working. It is not clear if this text rerouting method was widely used by hackers, but it was easier to pull off than other smartphone hacking methods like SIM swapping. Okay, so I've talked about SIM swapping before. Uh, that's basically sort of a form of mobile phone identity theft where you walk into, you know, you've got a target phone number in mind. You want to steal somebody's phone calls or text messages and you go into, let's say, AT&T because they're an AT&T cell phone subscriber. And you basically walk into the store saying, hey, I lost my phone. I need to get a new phone so I don't have my SIM. Um, I need to get a new phone and here's my phone number. Please, you know, set me up with a phone with a SIM card for that phone number. And if they convince them that they are you, uh, and give you know them even just a SIM card. It doesn't even have to be a phone. Um, you could say you could walk and say, "Well, I already have a phone. I just I, I lost my other phone. I, now I just need a SIM card that works for my account." Uh, and if they you know let them procure a SIM card that's associated with your account, all of a sudden their phone is your phone, and any phone messages, any uh, text messages that you would get, they also get. So you can see that that's a little harder um, to do than what we just talked about, which is to go online and pay sixteen bucks without proving who you are to reroute your text messages from their phone to your phone. But apparently that has been stopped. But the upshot is that should never have been possible. And at the end of the day, the real takeaway, and that leads us to our tip of the week, is that you shouldn't be using SMS for your two-factor authentication. Now, I will let me just say it at the outset, if, two, if SMS is your only method for doing two-factor authentication, it is still better than not having two-factor authentication. Because someone still has to go to a lot of effort in order to specifically target you and get your SMS messages. But if you are using two-factor authentication, and you absolutely should use it everywhere you can, if you have the choice, you should be using an authenticator app for your two-factor authentication pin code, not SMS. Uh, and again, we call that TOTP, time-based one-time password Time-based is just abbreviated with a T, or otherwise it would be TBOTP, which is even, even harder to say. Most most places don't call it that. Most places will just call it like Authenticator, an Authenticator app, or sometimes they will specifically say Google Authenticator, which is the most popular probably TOTP-based um, Authenticator app. But you do not have to use Google Authenticator. If it says it supports Google Authenticator, you can also use Authy, or actually one of many other ones. Authy, A-U-T-H-Y, is the one I prefer personally. And if you go to my website and search on Authy, you'll find probably a couple articles on that, uh, on why I prefer them and how to set that up. 
But the key here for the tip of the week is you really need to revisit. Well, first of all, if you're not using two-factor two authentication, use it. But the what I'm really kind of saying here is if you set up two-factor authentication via text message some time ago, or maybe you did have the option to go either way. And for whatever reason, you so you chose text messages. But for a long time, many places and still a lot of places only offer SMS as your option for two-factor authentication, but many have changed. Uh, I've noticed this myself because I've gone back to revisit some of the ones that I get myself. Basically, at this point, every time I go to a website and it sends me a text message, I'm like, oh, yeah, I should go check and see if they now have the better TOTP-based multi-factor authentication option. And many of them now do where they didn't before. Uh, Because certainly I would have gone with that first as my first choice if they had had it available. Some uh, have added it recently. So your task is to go for each of these accounts that you have two-factor authentication set up. Or if you want to set it up from scratch and you haven't already, which I recommend you do for anything important, anything financial, anything medical, anything social media, your email, all of them, uh, those are all important. I would add two-factor authentication and I would definitely go the method of using uh, an authenticator app for those instead. And if you have it set up already and it's set up based on SMS or text messages, you should change that if you can to use an authenticator app instead. Now note in some of these, you might have to do some things like it's a security feature, right? So you may actually have to go through the SMS based security feature to first disable the current mechanism and then re enable two factor authentication with the new mechanism. So I just wrote a newsletter slash blog article on this. Uh, So if you go to firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com, you can find a very recent article with lots of details on this. Um, If you've signed up for my newsletter, you've already gotten this information and you should definitely, definitely go do this. And there you have it. That's the news and the tip of the week. All right, this is a long one. So thanks for hanging in there. I just got a couple quick things before we go. Uh, first of all, I've gotten some more reviews in the books in the podcast. Uh, they don't have text associated with them, but I, it's great. I it just adds more reviews with five stars. That is wonderful. Thank you so much to everybody who's done it. Um, I will keep, try to keep an eye on those. And as they come in, certainly if anybody uh, posts one that actually has text, I will absolutely read that here on the air uh, as a small thank you, but those really do make a huge difference. And it's, it's important actually that, that, that they keep coming. Uh, they do get stale. So, you know, particularly on uh, Apple's iTunes podcast page and Amazon's book page. Those are the best places uh, to leave reviews if you're going to do it. But obviously, anywhere you buy the book, anywhere you listen to the podcast uh, is a great place to leave a review. And thank you so much to those who have done it and to uh, in advance to those who will do it. And also, if you haven't already, if you or, or maybe someone you know would like to subscribe to my Facebook page, please do. And also the newsletter. Um, again, it comes out every two weeks on Sunday, and every one of them is meant to have some relevant, actionable tip uh, to help protect your privacy or security. And maybe you're already sub- subscribed, which is great, but uh, please consider, you know, telling your friends and family, uh, have them subscribe as well. I'm trying to reach more people. And so word of mouth really, really helps. Next week, we'll have part one of my interview with Phil Zimmerman. Always very interesting. He's the, uh, the infamous creator of Pretty Good Privacy back in the 90s. If you want a little uh, primer, you can go back and listen to my first interview with him. I'll try to remember to put a link to the show notes for that, but he's a, he's a very interesting man. (laughs) Um, And we talk about several subjects. Uh, So be prepared for that next week, part one. And also uh, for my patrons, there will be 
lots of bonus content that I got. We had a really, we had a really long talk. So I'm going to carve out some of those maybe more political aspects of things we talked about probably and put that into bonus content for my patrons. All right, that's going to do it today. Thank you for tuning in. Subscribe if you haven't. That way you'll never miss another one. I hope you're all signing up and getting in line to get your shots. Maybe if you're really lucky, you've already gotten your vaccines. There is a light at the end of the tunnel, folks. We are getting there. The aftertimes are coming. But we've, we've got to get out there and get this done. We're in a race against time against variants popping up. So get out there, get it done, help others do it as well. And sooner or later, we'll all get to hug each other again and have dinner together again and go to parties together again. And can't wait to, uh, can't wait till those days come. And they're, they are coming. So that's going to wrap it up this week, everybody. Until next week, stay safe and don't get caught with your traffic stuff.